Rebecca pointed you to on the website. So if you're in the book of <clears throat> Judges, we're going to be kicking off a new series today. We're going to be in the first chapter, so I'm going to pray and then we're going to get going. I wonder if you'll join me in just um, gathering your scattered senses as we focus on God and his word. Yeah, Father, we thank you for singing. We thank you for gifts that serve us. We thank you for TV and tech, but we, we long more and more to be uh, more aware and grateful of you. And so we ask as we begin this journey through the book of Judges, Father, that you would help us through your spirit to see ourselves and to see you clearer and to know what it is to walk in greater dependency on you and in greater power with you. Amen. Amen. I just want to say alongside the sermon series, I really want to encourage you to devotionally read through the book of Judges. So maybe that will look like taking the chunk of scripture that we focused on for the preach in the coming week after it and going through it little by little. Next week when we're meeting in person, we're going to be handing out booklets uh, that are just branded with our Judges series, but they'll have space for you to write notes on. Um, hearing, looking, and even reading on tech devices is a great way to learn, but your learning is far better when you actually write. Studies show that you take a lot more in. So I really want to encourage you to get one of those journals next week. If you can't be here, let us know. And if you elsewhere, I'm sorry we can't get one to you right now, but get a book that you can write through and a booklet that you can use so that we can journey through Judges together. This is a fantastic book for you if you've ever struggled in your Christian life and you've ever oscillated between feeling flimsy and flaky and fed up to at times being red hot zealous and faithful and fervent in your Christian life. If you've ever gone through that cycle, put your hand up in your living room or here if you have. This book is a fantastic help in that because it helps us see why we struggle like we do. Why we go up and down in our Christian life. But it also points us and shows us the way to find solutions for our struggle. The book actually is tiringly filled with spiritual ups and downs. The, the main theme in the book of Judges is the cycle of rebellion and regret as the consequences of their rebellion. God's people take place and then they cry out to God and sometimes in repentance, sometimes just in regret. And then God sends them a deliverer and God raises up a judge, someone who God gives to deliver his people from their enemies and from their struggles and they come back to God and they go through that again. And again, and again, which is a story so often of our lives. And so if you're exhausted from your inconsistency, if there's sin in your life that you just don't seem to be able to walk free from, if there's a lack of spiritual hunger or a desire or a lack of joy in God, there is hope in these pages for you. Hope to see the root of those struggles but also hope to see the root out of those struggles as we learn the lessons of the book of Judges. And if you wouldn't say you're a follower of Jesus and maybe through lockdown you've been starved of some of the things that cover up a hunger or a yearning in you. You've been starved of a, a weekend fix of socializing or whatever it might be, the approval of your boss, the admiration of colleagues, um, shopping fix or something else. 
and you've come to the point where you think, I just, that can all be taken away from me. <laughs> Lockdown takes away everything that seems to feed and strengthen me, and you think, I need something better. That didn't really work. This book is also for you. And the book starts in chapter 1 with these words, Judges 1 verse 1, after the death of of Joshua. So this locates the book of Judges in a particular point in history. This isn't some nice remote story with a with a nice meaning. If you're a Christian, this is your story. In fact, if you're a person, <laughs> and hopefully everyone watching is, this is part of your story because the Bible is one big unfolding story of God and his purposes and his dealings with his people. And this sets the scene and that God has delivered his people out of slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt. You might know the Passover. I think it's, uh, lots of movies have been made out of it, animated cartoons. God delivers them mightily and with Moses through the Red Sea. And then they wander around in the desert, walking out of slavery in Egypt into freedom. And then Joshua takes the lead, as it were, after Moses and he led them into the promised land, the inheritance that God had them for. Because God always frees us from something for something. God always has a purpose for us. And he frees us out of something to bring us into something even better. And towards the end of Joshua's life, we read this in Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 to 45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land that he had sworn to give their ancestors. And they took possession of it. And they settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their ancestors. None of their enemies were able to stand against them, for the Lord handed over all their enemies to them. None of the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. The Lord's promises never failed. Everything was fulfilled. That's a good summary, wouldn't you agree? That's coming towards the end of the life of Joshua. And this is less a complete description of all that happened, but it's a general summary of the states of play. And basically it's proclaiming that up until this point, God has been utterly faithful and his people under Joshua had come into the land and they were taking hold of their inheritance. And it had gone pretty well up to this point. Not perfectly, but pretty well. And actually, as you see how God's people have this promise from God and this inheritance waiting for them that God will give them, but they also need to lay hold of it, it's a great way to think about your spiritual life. God has saved you if you're a Christian and called you into an inheritance with Him. And as you advance in the Christian life, you come ever increasingly into the land that God has for you into a sense of fulfillment and a sense of satisfaction. But there are battles to fight. And whilst God is sovereign and does it, there is also human responsibility. It's one of the great mysteries, but also wonderful things that the Bible shows the walk of walking with God is like. We take hold of all that God has laid hold of us for already. So this is super helpful in working out how you grow in your Christian life. Up to this point, at the beginning of Judges, the people's memory of slavery under Pharaoh, how hard that was and how miraculously God had delivered them is fresh and vibrant. They were a people who were filled with faith and desperation to enjoy this new life because they remembered freshly what they had been saved out of and how God had mightily delivered them. They were enjoying this new life. And then this warrior leader, Joshua, who had helped them take hold of their inheritance, he dies 
But the land that they're in still holds lots of enemies. There's still lots of land to be taken. There's still lots of inheritance to be had. And your Christian life is like that. There is ever-increasing abundance and fulfillment and discovery of what it is walking in God left for you. All your days you will be discovering more and more and more until you come to the ultimate promised land of the new heavens and the new earth when everything will be fulfilled in all its beauty and wonder and perfection. So for them, they've come to this point where Joshua's died, so now they don't have this great warrior leader. So they come and they ask God, what now? Judges 1 verses 1 to 2, after the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, who will be the first to fight for us against the Canaanites? They're still dependent on God, they're still looking to God. The Lord answered, Judah is to go, and I have handed the land over to him. And so God's people start to advance into the land. Judah goes up, and the next X verses are full of conquest and victory. They continue conquering the land and overcoming the Canaanites and the Perizzites and all the other parasites that live in the land. And individuals do great acts of valor. And we pick the story up in verse 19 of Judges chapter 1, where we read this. Read it carefully. The Lord was with Judah and enabled them to take possession of the hill country, tough land, but they could not, can you say could not? Could not, key words, drive out the people who were living in the plain because those people had iron chariots. Now iron chariots were like tanks of the day, as one preacher Put it. They were hard to overcome. They caused destruction. They were fierce enemies. They had iron chariots. Now these guys had done well. Conquest after conquest after conquest. And it was hard to overcome. I mean iron chariots are pretty imposing. Tanks, if you like, are pretty imposing. And the odds were against them. And then in verse 27 we also read this. It carries on after that point. Verse 19, talking about their struggles and their victories. Verse 27, at that time Manasseh failed to take possession. Can you say failed? Take possession of Bethshean and Tanakh and their surrounding villages. All the residents of Dor, Iblium and Megiddo and their surrounding villages. The Canaanites were determined, that's another key phrase, determined to stay in this land. Some translations would say they persisted, they wouldn't budge. So what do you do? God's commanded you to take hold of this land. God's commanded them to overcome all their enemies and they advance and they do well, but then they come up against people they could not drive out because they had iron chariots. And they come up against a stubborn, persistent, wouldn't budge people. In our Christian life, sometimes we can get saved and we can enjoy a sense of victory and advance in our Christian life. And then we come up against something. We come up against a thought pattern or an addiction or a propensity to a particular sin or an unbelief that just won't budge in our lives. And we feel we cannot. We feel the sin is like an iron chariot or it's persistent or it's deliberate. And we just can't budge it. But I mean, for the Israelites, it wasn't so bad. I mean, what do they do? Well, in verse 28 of chapter 1, we read that when Israel had become stronger, they made the Canaanites serve as forced labor. I mean, that's a pretty good deal. They couldn't overcome them and boot them out. So guess what? They just waited a little while, put up with them, and made them into forced labor. If you cannot 
overcome them, you might as well make them into forced labor. Sounds like a good compromise, wouldn't you say? Some of you are not too sure because you're not sure where the, where the point is going, so you're not quite quick to say it is a compromise. Well, chapter 1 reads pretty well, doesn't it? Joshua dies, the new generation see God, they go out and they make a good start, there are a few bumps along the way. They don't really fully obey God, but they couldn't because of the iron chariots and the stubborn, persistent opposition. But they do make some progress. Tim Keller says this about chapter one of Judges. Taken on its own terms, chapter one reads like a collection of Israel's press releases about their campaign. It's their spin on why they weren't as successful as we and God might have expected. After all, God had told them to take out all their enemies. As we read, we are lulled into sympathy with the Israelites. When we are told that they could not drive out the Canaanites, we are inclined to agree that they did their best. Maybe that's how you feel when you read Judges 1. I mean, it says that they could not. Surely that's true. There were iron chariots and stubborn people. And you and I will know in our life there's things that we cannot overcome. And we're lulled into thinking, it's okay, they did okay. But then comes God's verdict in chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. God says to them, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I had promised to your ancestors. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. You are not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You are to tear down their altars. Elsewhere you are to get rid of them totally. But you have not obeyed me. What have you done? God's verdict is not, it's okay. God's verdict is, that's an acceptable struggle. That's not his verdict. His verdict is straightforward and it's simple. And he says, you have not obeyed me. Can feel a little bit harsh, can't it? I mean, they couldn't overcome iron chariots and stubborn people. I mean, we can thank God they tried. Come on, this is not, you know, they, they obeyed as much as they were actually able to. They, they, they did okay, but God's verdict is not a pat on the back. God's verdict is a clear, you have not obeyed me. Which brings us to our first of three questions that I want to draw out from these texts. The first question is about strength. Where do you find your strength to obey God and to live a faithful life. Where do you find your strength? Tim Keller puts it like this so helpfully in his commentary on Judges, which is excellent. He says this, they were saying they could not. God was saying that they would not. Israel's failure to obey was based on what they saw as good reasons. God said that they were flimsy excuses. Sin in our lives, we have good reasons, but we still linger around it. Are we saying we cannot when God will simply say you would not? And this comes down to where we find our strength from. Because nothing had changed on God's behalf. 
They were never able to do it in the first place, were they? They were never able to break free from Pharaoh. They could not. They were never able to pass through the sea. They could not. They were never able to overcome Jericho. They could not. They were never able to do anything in and of themselves. They could not. But God's promises and God's power enabled them to do it when it looked like they could not, which is why this is a question of where your strength is. God was the one who brought down the walls of Jericho. All they did was march around and shout in obedience to God, trusting God, fully dependent on God himself. They had moved from walking in total and utter dependence by God and living by faith in him, remembering who he is and what he had done despite their circumstances. And they had moved into, well, let's weigh this up in human terms. They've got iron chariots. We've lost a battle. We can't go again. It's intimidating. It's difficult. Maybe we should just wait until we're stronger and then we can subdue them. Surely that's okay. They had moved from total utter dependence and obedience and living in faith in God to analyzing and assessing things and moving towards self-reliance. And we do the same so easily. We make progress in our Christian life. We enjoy the abundance of it. We're desperate in prayer. We realize what the old life was like and what we have now. We hold on to God. We trust Him. We obey. We give. We pray. But life goes on and there's a few struggles that, well, you know, everyone lives with those their whole lives. So it's, it's okay. As long as we kind of have it under control, as long as we subdue it most of the time. I'm never going to overcome and walk in freedom in that area, so I'm just going to live with it being a bit under control. Occasionally it raises its head, but it's iron chariots and stubborn sin. I cannot do anything about it, and it becomes an acceptable struggle. (laughs) I've been preaching this to myself first and foremost. Where in your life have you got an acceptable struggle? A thought pattern, an insecurity, an addiction, a trial. I'm not for a moment saying they are easy. But what I'm saying is God is bigger than them. And he's not calling you to settle for compromise. So where are you saying I cannot, but God says you will not? And the answer to that question reveals where you find your strength. Where do you find your strength? If it was ever up to you alone, you would never walk in any freedom whatsoever. Because that's what sin does. Sin enslaves us. We are worshippers by nature. We will always worship something. And if it's not the life-giving, living God, it will be something else. And all other gods enslave negatively. There's a beautiful kind of willing joyful enslavement to a good benevolent God where are you saying you cannot but God saying you will not where are you finding your strength which is connected to our next question about sin how are you in reality dealing with sin now some things we will be battling our whole lives until we come to glory and that's the reality of it 
but we can know ever-increasing freedom and grace even in the battle. But how are you dealing with sin? Look what God says at the beginning of chapter two where he says, you've not obeyed my voice. What is this you've done? Verse three, he says, so now I will say, I will not drive them out before you, but there shall be thorns in your side and their gods will be a snare to you. You see, when you do not deal ruthlessly with sin, it becomes a thorn in your side, and it becomes a snare to you that you struggle with on and on and on until you have put that sin to death. God has freed his people. He's given them this land. He's commanded them to cleanse Canaan from idols, not to plunder the land. God commanded them not to do that, but they were to get rid of all the idols so that they would not snare God's people so that God's people could be free and live in faithfulness and live in fullness of life. The reason God calls you to obey, and he does, is so that you would walk in the freedom and the fullness of life, just like any parent, loving parent calls their children to obey so that their children can be safe and their children can flourish and enjoy the fullness of life. God's call to obedience is a call to freedom. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. His commands are not burdensome. Following God's way is what is best for you. But because the Israelites disobeyed, and because the Israelites compromised, the people of the land were a thorn and a snare in their lives and a hindrance to him. And this is what happens when you entertain sin in any way, shape, or form. It hampers you. It's like a timely illustration, a virus that you learn to live with. It saps you of life. You're fatigued from fighting, squirmish after squirmish after squirmish with the same sins. Your spiritual breath is sucked from you and you cycle through sin, guilt, shame, regret, renewed effort. Sin, guilt, shame, regret, renewed effort. Do you know that pattern? (laughs) Yes. We all do, again and again and again. So the areas where we're saying we cannot are often areas where we have not dealt ruthlessly with sin because it feels too much to do. And we've kind of put it in a safe box and occasionally it comes up, but it's still there. Sin spoils, it spreads, and it separates. And little sin grows into big sin. And small compromise leads to great Chaos. Where are you saying you cannot, but God says you will not? Where are you relying on your own strength and how you think things will work out best? Where are you not totally dependent upon God? Let's wrestle with a few things. Forgiveness, unforgiveness. Are you holding on to unforgiveness saying that you cannot forgive? This is a huge one. and We think it's just a small thing. God commands forgiveness. It's the fruit of a saved life. There's no wriggle room with unforgiveness. You've been forgiven more than you will ever need to forgive. Now, I don't say that lightly because some of you have been sinned against grievously. But our sin towards God is far weightier than we can ever imagine. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 2, it makes it clear That unforgiveness is a means that Satan uses to outwit us. Literally says that in the Bible. We think we're just harboring a grudge. No, no, no. When you don't forgive, Satan is outwitting you. And it leads to all sorts of consequences. Maybe it's money or financial generosity. And you say, God, I can barely afford things the way they are. Much less be generous and give God my first fruits. We say we cannot, God says you will not. Money can only be mastered or it becomes your 
master. Maybe it's your integrity. If I stand up at work, I will be cast out. I cannot do that. I cannot do without my job. I can't handle my father-in-law's disapproval or I can't do without my colleague's admiration. And so we say we cannot. And God says you will not. Maybe it's avoiding sexual temptation. If I cut off that environment or those people, I will be lonely and I, we say we cannot. God says you will not. You can throw away your phone and not have internet. <laughs> no. Maybe it won't come to that, but you can do that. Commitment. If I commit, I will get hurt. Maybe rejected. People will see the real me if I commit. I I can't do that. Maybe it's confession. I cannot. What will people think of me if I truly confess? I'll, I'll be looked down on. I'll be thought... Less of. Listen, there is only one way to walk in fullness of life with God, and that is all in. You're hot or you're cold. Lukewarm leads to a life that is hindered and limping life. Many of you, especially maybe new Christians, you're finding this new life beautiful at the start, but maybe not quite as good as you thought it would be. And I think that's probably because you've not been helped to say goodbye to an old life and to put to death certain things. Becoming a Christian is a total change. It's not just tacking Jesus on (laughs) to your life. It's saying goodbye to an old life. It's not going there. It's not doing that. It's not entertaining that anymore. And when we don't do that and we don't help people see that walking Christian life is saying no to all of that and putting to death sin, people tag Jesus on and then they wonder why my life isn't quite as I thought it would be. Things become a snare to us if we do not cut them off. All cannots, all sin, ultimately come from unbelief. Martin Luther put this, every sin springs from a wicked heart of unbelief. The reason you and I sin is because of unbelief. I don't know if you ever thought of it like that. The reason we struggle to be totally faithful to God is because of unbelief. We only sin because we believe that God is not satisfying enough. That his ways are not good enough. Nor is his strength sufficient enough for me and my situation. That is why we sin. Because we don't think enough of God and what he can do. And how satisfying he is. Are you dealing ruthlessly with little sin? If you're younger and life is still to unfold before you much One of the best things you can do now is learn how to deal ruthlessly with little sin so that you're not plagued by stubborn iron chariot sin the rest of your life. You will always have to fight. There's a difference between fighting from a place of victory than fighting just to cope. God's purpose for you is not to cope. And if you're a bit older in the tooth, like me or even a bit older, it's never too late to walk in freedom for what God has for you. Small compromise leads to significant chaos. Maybe it is unforgiveness. Do you know, unforgiveness, amongst many things, leads to bitterness, and it can lead to affecting your physical health. Lack of integrity leads to guilt, and it leads to withdrawal from accountable and supportive relationships, and it leads to loneliness and exhaustion, because you've got to keep up the fake image. 
Lack of financial generosity leads to enslavement to the God of money. Compromising with sexual temptation leads to all your relationships being marred and tainted by it. We think we can make it into slaved labor, but in reality we become the slave. And on and on it goes. How are you dealing with sin? Where are you saying you cannot, but you will not? Do not let convenience trump obedience. So where do you need to and where must you take action now before you are ensnared or before you come more ensnared? Where must you ask for help? Don't try and do this alone. Where must you ask for help where you feel you cannot or where you already feel beaten? Do not go it alone. Now some of you, rightly so, and I hope you're asking this question, say, what about grace? I hear you say, good question. We are a grace-filled people, which means our standing and our acceptance before God is based on Jesus Christ and His victory and His righteousness, not our perfection. So our obedience is not about our standing before God. That is settled in Christ. I am who you say I am. We sang it today. And when you fall and when you falter, which you will, you come immediately, not delayed. You come immediately before the throne of grace to receive mercy and find help in your time of need. As Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, Therefore let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You run straight to God, not away from God. But, but, but grace is never an excuse for sin. It's never a license for compromise. In fact, quite the opposite. It is the very power you need and enabling to obey God. And God is faithful. Can you say faithful? This is what he was reminding the Israelites. I have done it. I have brought you out. Don't you trust me anymore? God is faithful. And he will never, say never, never allow you to be tempted beyond your ability to resist it. Never. If you've not memorized that verse and it's the first thing you say when you feel disempowered against sin, you're missing out on grace. You tell God that he has said he will never let you, which means you have all the resources in God to resist always. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, God is faithful. He will never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Not only does grace help you resist temptation, it enables you to desire and pursue righteousness. My favorite verse, probably in the whole of scripture, Titus 2 verse 11 to 12. I'm not sure you're allowed to have a favorite, but I like this one. For the grace of God has appeared in Jesus that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us, there's something about grace as it shows us Jesus and what is done that it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. That's just one side. But it also teaches us to live a self-controlled, upright, godly life in the present age. If you've not memorized that verse and you don't use it as a weapon in spiritual warfare, you are missing out on the grace of God. I memorized this and I used to pray it every time. God, you've said, you said, I can say no. Not only that, you've said, I can pursue righteousness. I don't want to just live my life saying no to stuff I really want. I want to spend my life saying yes to stuff that you want and to enjoy that and to have your heart. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Let's be clear on that. 
Grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. So do not run away from God because you will be running away from the very power that you need and you'll be running to your own strength. Run to Him, utterly dependent upon Him. He is faithful. Strength, where is your strength? Are you fully dependent upon God? Sin, how are you dealing with sin? And our final question, savoring. Can you say savoring? Are you savoring Jesus? Because that is what keeps you in the place of faith and confidence in him. So what do I mean? Well, do you notice how God confronted them in chapter two? Listen to this. He says in chapter two, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land. I had promised your ancestors. I also said I would never break my covenant with you. And then he says, why have you done that? Why is God reminding them about what he's done? Do you think they've forgotten (laughs) Pharaoh and the Red Sea? Why remind them? What's going on? Chapter 2, verse 10. And all the generation also who, who were with Joshua died, gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. It's obvious this verse is not saying that they had no mental awareness of it. Of course they did. Of course they knew that God had delivered them from Pharaoh through the Red Sea, overcome Jericho. Of course they knew that. So then why does God remind them? Why does God say that they did not know the Lord? Well, the Hebrew word here is yada. Can you say yada? I don't know if it's yada or yada or yada. It's a great word. This speaks of an experiential, deep relation, relational knowing kind of intimacy. They didn't yada God. There was a, they didn't have a knowing of the heart through experience that brought the mental knowledge to life. Yeah, they might have sung a song that they knew God had done these things. But they had failed to keep walking in relationship with God and savoring Him and what He had done. Their failure to obey was a failure to remember. Our failure to obey is a failure to remember who God is, what He's done, and the promises that He has given us. Which means we need to remember so that we can obey. But we need to yada. We need to freshly infuse ourselves and savor Jesus and all his truth. I am a biltong lover. If you don't know what biltong is, some people call it beef jerky. It's dried, spiced meat that you can chew on sometimes. You can get little packs in the supermarket that are okay. But fresh biltong is a little bit, the best type is a little bit chewy. Okay, It's a little bit gristly and chewy. And I love the chewy bits because you can put it in your mouth. And you can chew on it just for ages. I was going to say hours, maybe hours. But when I was young, we used to have big sticks of biltong like that. And you just take a stick and all day you would just chew on it. And you would savor it until every bit of your mouth was infused with the flavor of biltong. Or maybe you'd like to think about something else. I don't know what that would be for you. What's something you like to chew on and savor every little bit of taste and suck it all out? Of it. You need to savor Jesus, something like that. <laughs> Savoring Jesus, the way you do it is you learn, you read, you pray, you commune with God, you take a truth. God, you said I would never 
be tempted beyond my ability to bear. And you chew it over and you over and you take this promise from Scripture and you memorize it. You said, I will never be able, never be tempted beyond my ability to bear. But you will provide a way out. You chew over it and you emphasize each word. You, God, this is all about you. You said, God, you declared it. It's true. I would never. You said this is a permanent thing. Never. It's not just sometimes. Not just with the small spoon. You said never. You take Scripture like that and you chew it over and you memorize it and you savor it and you bring it to bear on every situation in your life. Sometimes we think spiritual warfare is all sorts of other stuff, which it can be, but that there is spiritual warfare. It's taking the weapon of Scripture and bringing it to bear on your life. You let it sink into your soul. It's why we sing rich theological songs. So that we can sing, no. Because singing gets something into your soul in a way that just reading it doesn't do. And hearing others communally sing it. It infuses your soul with deep truth. If you are not a singer, I commend singing to you as a means of God's grace to you. If you've entrusted your salvation to God, how much more can you entrust your struggle to Him? The moment we take Jesus for granted, investing in our relationship with him, the moment we don't live with a vibrant remembering, compromise is never far away. Sin is crouching at the door. We are a promise-relying, Jesus-dependent people. And as I come to an end, I want to share a quote with you from John Flavel. So we've had these three questions. Where do you find your strength? How are you dealing with sin? They reveal the root Are you savoring Jesus, which is the root out? It never gets old. Unfortunately, though, our walk with God can get normal. We need to fight for a constant, vibrant faith. John Flavel was a Protestant, and they were known for being dull and boring and serious, but it's not always the case. He wrote this. He said, ecstasy and delight are essential to the believer's soul experience. And they promote sanctification. We are not meant to live without spiritual exhilaration. And the Christian who goes for a long time without the experience of heartwarming will soon find himself tempted to have his emotions satisfied from earthly things and not as he ought from the Spirit of God. That's powerful, isn't it? If you're not satisfied in God, encountering Him, you will go chasing after something else. He goes on. He says, The soul is so constituted that it craves fulfillment from things outside itself and will embrace earthly joys for satisfaction when it cannot reach spiritual ones. The believer is in spiritual danger if he allows himself to go for any length of time without tasting the love of Christ and savoring the felt comforts of a Savior's presence. When did you last taste the love of Christ. Not just know about it. When did you yada? When did you last taste the love of Christ? Final bit of the quote. When Christ ceases to fill the heart with satisfaction, our souls will go in silent search of other lovers. By the enjoyment of the love of Christ in the heart of the believer, we mean an experience of the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. 
when did you last have an experience of heartwarming from the love of God? As we come to an end, and I just invite the band up, we're going to worship in a, in a second and have communion. If you have your communion things um, ready, it would be great if you, can, if you can get those. Depending on how you are wired, you'll have a tendency to walk away from this preach and just remember this. God said you did not obey. We must not forget that. But the moment we dwell on that and savor that, we move away from God to ourselves and even our own guilt and shame. We must confess that. We must repent and change our ways. But the root out of that is to savor Jesus. The whole point of the book of Judges, I think, is this. No matter who God raises up to deliver the people and no matter how well they do, They're all broken in and of themselves. And they all struggle. They do well and then they fail and they do well and then they fail, they do well and then they fail. And it all points to the one great judge, Jesus, who will one day come and he will, having defeated every enemy, he'll usher in a new kingdom and a new promised land. And so just as you get the bread and wine or whatever you have ready for communion, I want to ask you if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian today and you can see the cycle in your life of emptiness, pursuing something, trying to get it right and, and you just know today that you need Jesus. I want you in your own way now to say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. I know not what to do. Save me. I need this life. If you're a Christian and you are just working out how to deal with sin, and you need to make sure that you have people in your life who can help you and you wrestle with scripture and you take hold of it, get in touch with someone. But maybe you've got areas of sin in your life you think, I cannot. I want to tell you that there is power for you to be able to break free today. And you're not to settle for that. You need help. Speak to someone today before the day's out. And as we break bread and have the wine. Let's just savor Jesus. Lord, we welcome you into crazy living rooms with kids running around, into kitchens as we prepare lunch, into this very hall now. Just welcome Jesus. Ask him to fill you with the Holy Spirit where you are now. Come, Lord Jesus, fill us with your spirit, Lord. The Spirit comes God in us dwells in our hearts and through him we cry Abba Father we have this experience we have this satisfaction we have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts maybe you've never known that experience just the overwhelming love of God Lord I pray now on myself and all of us fill us Lord with this life we must have it we accept that we cannot do anything apart from you But we say with you, we believe all your promises for sufficiency and power and help. So Lord, as we break the bread, we remember your body, Lord Jesus, broken for us. And that by your wounds, we are healed. I believe there's healing physically, spiritually, emotionally. So I pray for healing right now.
And Lord, as we drink this wine, we are taking hold of the inheritance that Christ won for us through his death and his resurrection. And we come to worship you now. If you want prayer and you're watching online, click the prayer button or send us an email. Or if you're here, I'd love to pray with you. Lord, we love you and we invite you now to come and fill us as we worship you. Amen. God bless you.